Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by the ineffable Gene Yumi, also known as Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very, very well, Kaiser, and it seems our, our streak of luck has come back, and Every time we record recently, it's a more or less a blue sky day. Uh, we, we keep saying that, but actually, I've, I've coughed and choked my way through a couple. Of well, shows. I've got to make my five, five mile kaisers yeah, from the Beijing propaganda way. department. So, uh, so today we're going to talk about China and more generally Asia in the mind of Australia. So, personally, as of course as a son of the Chinese diaspora, I'm fascinated with how Chinese and other East Asians have been perceived, how they've assimilated or resisted assimilation, how. They've interacted with the societies into which they've emigrated. So, with us to talk about this topic is Professor David Walker, who currently is BHP Billiton Chair Professor of Australian Studies at Peking University here in Beijing.、Uh, Professor Walker, David, is that okay? David's fine. David's <laughs> fine. Has written extensively on Australian representations of Asia.、Uh, his prize-winning book, Anxious Asia: Australia and the Rise of Asia, 1850 to 1939, which was published in 1999, has been translated into Chinese and published by China Renmin University Press、uh, about a decade later. An English edition was published in India in the same year, and a Hindi translation is going to be published this year. He is also co-editor with Agnieszka Sobotinska of Australia's Asia: From Yellow, Yellow Peril to Asian Century, which was a 2012 work. A collection of his Asia-related essays has been published under the title "Encountering Turbulence: China in the Australian Image, Imagine, in, Imaginary." Is that correct? That's, that's correct. That's, that's, that's correct. In the Australian Imaginary. Uh, his recent published personal history, not dark yet, which we'll talk about,、uh, was translated into Chinese by Professor Li Yao and published by the People's Literature Publishing House, Beijing, here in、uh, 2014. So, Professor Walker, welcome to Seneca. It's a great pleasure to be here.、Uh, so, David, can we start with a question of Australian studies?、Um, uh, what's the state of Australian studies here in in, in China? The state of Australian studies is pretty healthy. I mean, it goes back to the 1980s. So after the opening,、um, late 70s, early 80s,、uh, mm-hmm. there was an interest in in trying to get a, a stronger presence in China. So there was a Australian Studies Centre established at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Okay.、Uh, another one in the mid 80s at East China Normal, and now there are 42, over 42, Australian Studies Centres or programs. Across China, some are pretty strong,、uh, robust. You know, lots of staff, lots of students. It's almost、uh, like a symmetry. Small. I mean,、uh, Jeremy, how many Chinese studies programs are in Australia? I mean, I know that you work for for the center, or you do a lot of work with the Australian Center on China in the World,、mm. with that,、uh, that infamous troublemaker Barmay.、Mm. So,、uh, well, I mean, the,、uh, Chinese studies in Australia is also thriving. That I would have to say, both at uh,、um, you know、uh, secondary and tertiary levels, and、uh, all kinds of things, ranging from、uh, the Australian Centre on China in the World at、uh, Australian National University to Confucius Centres、uh, to high school programs. So, yeah, most、uh, Australian universities would have a pretty significant China program, I would think,、uh, and a China research interest. And what do students who are studying at at, at the centre you're chairing now? What would they go on to do after they've、uh, completed a degree? Or、uh... well, at, at, at Beidou, most of them,、uh, the centre is located in the School of Foreign Languages, which is the traditional location for such centres because the students have the language. You know, they've they've, they've got、uh, they've got the language, and normally they start with the literature. Uh, interest. So most of them would go off into, you know, teaching or、um, various kind.、Uh, ma- many go into business. To a lot, a lot of them go into、uh, various joint ventures that draw upon their English.、Um, so so companies and th- and then Strine, right? <laughs>、uh, yes, that's right. So they have a second language, which right, is right.、Uh, which is Strine, which is very good for them, of course. <laughs>、yeah. uh, when you say Australian literature, I mean, I I, I guess not a whole lot of it comes immediately to. Mind、uh, well, that's the American mind again, Kaiser. I think right, you、right. see. So that's the.、Uh, I think that's... Patrick White is is, is a global yeah, figure. He's、uh, also、yeah. South African, isn't he? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. They no, were James Kutsia. Yeah, yeah, he's now yeah, an Australian. Kutsia,、yeah. yes, is now in Australia, but、yeah. of South African origin. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose White. I mean, White White kind of kicked off an interest because he got the Nobel Prize in seventy three or、mm. whatever. So.、Um, And the first group of Chinese, a big group, a gang of nine,、uh, 
uh, Chinese scholars went to Australia in 1979. They went to the University of Sydney. And they were the people who really founded Australian studies in China. Most of them had a linguistics or a literature background. And a lot of them had an interest in Patrick White. So he was he was a great global figure, Nobel Prize, all that. So, you know, he kind of stood out as a as a person to study. Okay. Okay. So I guess I want to shift into and, and, and start talking about um, Asia in the Australian yeah. imaginary. Um, you, you've written a, a number of books and, and contributed to some volumes uh, about this so the subject. How would you tell the story of the changing attitudes of Australia toward Asia and more specifically to China? I mean, uh, maybe you could give us what the major chapters are and what the inflection points are in, in, in that changing uh uh, attitude toward them. I mean, back to the 1850s or, or back yeah, to, you know, sure, sure. Australia and exclusion. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the 1850s is really the starting point for a significant Chinese presence in uh, in Australia as the Chinese came to the goldfields, particularly in uh, in Victoria, but across Australia. So the goldfields were the great draw card, the great attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, one in four adult males in the colony of Victoria at the end of the 1850s was was Chinese. So a very significant number came in. But that's also the point at which there was a very significant concern about uh, those numbers. So in some ways, the idea of Australia as a white, racially homogenous community grew out of the contact with or experience of and worry about the Chinese. So that built up through the 19th century. And by the late 19th century, there was a growing um, geopolitical unease, so hence the title of that book, uh, Anxious Nation, as Australia began to worry about the fact that it was surrounded by, first of all, discovered that it was in the Asia region, the Asia-Pacific region, and then discovered that there are a hell of a lot of people all around, and not all of them were necessarily well disposed, and they didn't understand them. So... Uh, the anxious nation of the book's title um, derives from that concern about invasive Asia. You know, that here's Australia, 4 million people in 1900, big continent, uh, regarded often as an empty continent. Uh, and why wouldn't all these people who are crowded and poor and desperate for space mm-hmm. want to come down and take it over? So that's the first really powerful... Uh, representation of Asia, if you like, in the late 19th and early 20th century, that, that it's it's big, uh, there are a hell of a lot of them, um, and there's every possibility that they may come in and take over uh, the Australian continent. Mm-hmm. Were, were those fears expressed in specific ways, you know, uh, uh, fears of, you know, that they will take our women or that they, you know, that they're dirty, they'll bring diseases, or what, what were the... the sort of prejudices? I think there was a bit of, uh, pretty well a bit of everything there, Jeremy. I mean, there was certainly, um, there's the famous, there's a famous cartoon of, a, of an octopus which has on each of the tentacles uh, various diseases. So there's leprosy and smallpox. Uh, there's also a concern. So there's a disease-related concern. There's a, there's a sexually-related concern about um, Chinese males uh, as predators um, on on European women, um, there's opium, uh, gambling, um, absence of any uh, religion that uh, Christians would recognise as such, and so on. So there's a whole bunch of uh, sort of moral um, and uh, health related concerns about uh, the Chinese, but but the. I think, in a sense, the overriding image becomes the the invasive Asia image, which is invasive across all those fields, if you like, all those territories. But it's also a geopolitical uh, unease or anxiety that um, that as Asia rises, uh, it'll it'll come into uh, to Australia and see it as a as a valuable territory. Were these negative perceptions applied across the board, across all different Asian nationalities, to Indonesians, to uh, 
to 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 Indo Chinese as well. No, not to the same extent. I mean, the the um, I think the key to it is is where the where there was perceived to be a threat, and in the first instance, the threat was mainly Chinese. mainly Chinese. Right. And then uh, first Sino-Japanese War, uh, it starts to shift towards uh, Japan. Uh, after the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-05, it, it moves to Japan even more because, uh, you know, first Asian nation to defeat a European That's nation good. in the modern world, etc., etc. So the, it starts to shift away from, from China towards, towards Japan. And there are different different images there. I mean, in a sense, the, the China image is the failed state, you know, the collapsing dynasty and that huge uh, diasporic population pouring out of failing China. And in Japan, it's much more a right. militarized uh, nation arising in the Pacific uh, with, you know, strong navy, military, discipline, Bushido, etc., as you rattled off that litany of complaints that they have against Chinese, uh, it, it sounds like that could that cartoon could have been printed any time during the second half of the 19th century in the United States, uh, and it would have been the same list of, of, of things. Uh, w- would you compare the 19th century experience of Chinese in Australia to the United States? Is it pretty comparable? I think it is pretty comparable, especially around California, maybe California more so than other parts of the states. And in fact, a lot of the um, one of the other expressions of that anxiety is through invasion literature. So there are stories that the first invasion story actually is published in 1888 in Australia. So it's, um, you know, it sort of kicks off then. And a lot of those themes have themes in common with American literature of a similar kind at the same period. And then a little bit later, you get figures like um, Dr. Fu Manchu. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. more devious, kind of diabolical. Yeah, to, yeah, uh, devious, diabolical, but also intellectually gifted. So you've got a huge kind of, a huge amoral Chinese intellect uh, at work uh, on, um, on, on attaining world power. And so Fu Manchu pops up a little bit later and a lot of those anxieties uh, have their earlier expressions in some of that literature that I've referred to. You know, very uh, intellectually, uh, very, very capable uh, Chinese, but in these fictional represent- representations, cut off from any kind of moral uh, moral sense. Mm. So they're amoral uh, seekers of world power. Which is uh, something you still hear today, essentially. Indeed, indeed. I think it's a very, it's a very, very powerful uh, uh, stereotype. I wasn't going to raise that, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> I mean, it, it's the, the Fumanchu parallels are kind of eerie now. I mean, I, I, know, I know people who sort of still still see China kind of in those terms. Um, well, the, well, the Fu Manchu figure continued down into the '60s. I mean, they were still oh, producing. Sure. You know, so the first Fu Manchu came just before the First World War. But there were still novels published down into the '60s, and and um, store you know television dramas based I, around Fu Manchu into the '60s and '70s. I remember uh, comic books, American Fu Manchu comic books from my childhood. Of sure, Fu I mean, there okay. were other manifestations like this. Yeah. I mean, if you looked at um, uh, what was that, uh, Flash Gordon? Yeah, he, sure. He had Ming the Merciless. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Manchus and the Ming. We want to bring them up both. <laughs> yeah, why not? Get them all in there. Right. Uh, Why discriminate? And then, of course, you ruled a planet called Mongo. And so, I mean, the sort of Mongolian horde idea was yeah. ever present in, in, in that. that. Uh, were there other discrete waves, major waves of immigration into Australia from, from China? So we have the, the gold mines or the gold fields yeah. in, in the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, after that, well, I guess after mm. Federation in 1901, there was this Exclusion Act, and I suppose they, they stymied many f- further immigration for a while. Can, can we talk about the Exclusion yeah, yeah, Act a little bit? I mean, how yeah, did that sure. come about, and how, what were its mechanics? Well, the mechanics were, I mean, it, it really, uh, through the 19th century, you have a, a number of, you have separate colonies, basically, and each of those colonies, New South Wales, Victoria, etc., each of them introducing their own legislative arrangements. So there's no national um, scheme. Uh, Federation comes along 
the nation is created on the 1st of January 1901. We have a constitution, federal parliament. So federal parliament, in a sense, ties together all those separate legislative arrangements of the 19th century into the Immigration Restriction Act, otherwise known as the White Australia Policy. So the White Australia Policy, and there's a lot of discussion around it, and there was a feeling that, uh, you know, Australia had to be careful not to look uh, racially prejudiced in introducing this legislation. So it was introduced as an education test. So the dictation test. A right? dictation <laughs> test, that's right. So you gave... Uh, immigrants coming in uh, of Asian background uh, a test in a European language which you were confident they would fail. Uh, that would then demonstrate that they were not uh, educationally or intellectually equipped for citizenship in the Australian uh, nation. Uh, so they'd be rejected on educational, not racial grounds. But of course the whole thing was a, a pretty much a facade to disguise a racially-based policy, you know, or dress it up in other terms. And dictation tests continued to be implemented all the way through, what, the 1950s, 1960s, right? Indeed, yep. They were, they were going into the 1960s, um, oh and uh, they, they were um, finally phased out in the late 60s as, as the policy began to uh, be pared back, but it was still hanging around for a very, very long time. Were they used on Greek and Italian immigrants at all, or was it really just a 100% facade for, for sort of racial profiling? It was pretty much a racial profiling thing, although if you if you got people coming in, like there was a famous um, uh, left-wing um, commentator, Egon Kish, in the 1930s, who sought entry to Australia to discuss uh, matters relating to, you know, world revolution, uh, socialism, uh, end of capitalism and so on, and they tried to get Kish on the immigration test, and he was one of those unfortunate people who spoke uh, all known European languages, so they were a bit stuck on what to do with with uh, with Egon. So they gave him Gaelic, and the uh, High Court of Australia ruled that it wasn't a European language in current usage, <laughs> so they were knocked out. On uh, but Kish was a real problem because he spoke so many languages, and they didn't know which one to try and get him on. So occasionally it'd be used uh, for those purposes, but it was primarily a racially oriented um, mechanism to keep people they didn't want out. Um, so I, I was asking about uh, discrete major waves of immigra- immigration yeah. uh, in, into Australia. So. Uh, Perhaps I mean after after the second war was there another uh, another wave or uh... yeah well basically you have you have that 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 community that that's still in Australia after nineteen hundred one is a very interesting one actually sociologically and in all sorts of other ways because I they're mean, an aging community they're they're from South China yeah they're pretty much from South China they're they're they've often got well established. Uh, connections to Australia, they're they're in business or whatever. They they Australia is their is their home and their place, but they're an aging community. It's a community that can't, in a sense, renew itself uh, very successfully. But it's uh, it's after the Second World War that you start to have a very slow and cautious easing of that of that policy. But it's really not until. Uh, 1972, with the election of the Whitlam government, and Whitlam died last week at the age of 98, yeah, the Prime Minister who uh, recognised China and finally removed the uh, White Australia policy. It's not until the 70s that those communities start to rebuild. And so we don't see another major wave, of actually, of immigration probably then until uh, opening and reform in China when, when actually immigration was, was allowed. In. That's right. It's starting from the, from the, really from the 1980s. Right. Now, I remember in the late 1980s, uh, quite a, I'm, I'm sure, Jeremy, this is the case with you too, you had a lot of friends who, uh, mainland Chinese friends of yours, who uh, suddenly saw Australia as a, a, a very viable kind of emigration destination. And it remains the case to this day. It I mean, does indeed. U.S., uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, right? Those are the top four. So I know in the U.S., um, you know, there, there are different strata. Of, you know, you have people who went over in, in the 19th century and then, uh, you know, established these old Chinatown communities and kept very close ties to, to their hometowns in the Pearl River Delta, uh, 
Later, you had uh, after the nineteen, especially in the nineteen fifties, a lot of people who had gone to Taiwan and then emigrated to the U.S. Uh, and they, they they were sort of you know uh, usually in the professional classes. They were they tended to be Mandarin speaking hmm. and, and better educated. Your parents' lot, basically. my parents, right? right. My, my parents were are a perfect example of them. Uh, and then later, I mean, th- those were sort of your classic ABCs, the kids that that, that they yeah. had. Uh, and then there were what they call the XYZs, the people who went over after seventy nine and then had children there, and whose surnames were spelled with. X, Y, Z. Oh, really? Right. I didn't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> because yeah. it's in pinyin, whereas, you know, we are all, you know, we, we begin with K's and H's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your Chang's instead of Jang's. Right, yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I reckon it would be similar in Australia, and, I, and, you know, there'd be a similar kind of pattern there. Yeah, yeah. What, with a real Germany, acceleration. This, the number of parallels yeah. is really eerie. I think it would be pretty similar, yeah. Jeremy, do you agree on that? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think I'm much less familiar than you are, but mm. I, that, that sounds about right. And mm. But I mean, what I've noticed, I've been going to Australia frequently for about the last four years, is is just the huge numbers of, of uh, foreign students, of Chinese students in Australia and new new immigrants. It's just, it's very, very noticeable in uh, Australia's major cities. Oh, well, that, that's true. I mean, whenever... Um Whenever you have a kind of embassy-related discussion, which it's important to note the connection between Australia and China, uh, there are several things that, that come out, but one of them is that the second most frequently spoken language in Australia today after English is Mandarin. Mm. So that's uh, that, that one, I think, uh, kind of nails a, a change that's uh, pretty significant in, in Australia. And also means that some of the old anxieties and some new ones are coming back. And mm. perhaps we can start that discussion with a reference to that uh, countryman of yours, Clive Palmer, mm. who seems to swing between uh, sycophancy for his Chinese partners and China generally, and more recently calling them, or at least his business partners, what did he call them? A bunch of bastards, mm. uh, yeah. which well, he later well, apologized for, uh, Clive Palmer. Um, you know, does that, is that a, is, is he just a freak uh, or, uh, or does he actually represent an anxiety in, I mean, was this in, sort in Australia? Hansen streak still alive in, in Australia? Yeah, well, well it, it is in a way. I mean, if, if you look at the, if you go back to the 19th century, those 19th century anxieties I was talking about, I think you could argue that they were mainstream concerns in late 19th century Australia. And I think the, the Hansen, uh, and up to a point maybe Palmer. Palmer's a bit different, I think. But the Hansen anxiety is is a kind of later version of that, but very much a minority um, concern in Australia now. So at, the, at their height, they would get 10 to 15% of the vote. But then that collapsed. Um, thankfully. Uh, thankfully. And so, yeah, so that that's a very, um, a very different... Um, or has a very different place in the culture now and politically uh, than used to be the case. But Palmer, again, is, a, is a, a bit of a freak in Australian politics, you know, that he, a big, you know, very, very wealthy businessman, um, quite a populist in all sorts of ways, caught up with, in a, in a pretty complex way that I don't begin to understand with, um, you know, his Chinese business partners, and Which was Citic, right? The, Citic, an arm of Citic. It yeah. is an arm of Citic, Citic Pacific, I mm. think. And so there's something pretty, pretty uh, unattractive going on there. And um, and there's a hell of a bloody battle. And uh, basically, what what uh, Palmer did was uh, bring a a business dispute uh, into a public forum uh, in a way that um, you know had him delivering those. Uh, the, you know, there's pretty unattractive pronouncements about the Chinese. But what also happened almost immediately was uh, that a hell of a lot of people rushed up and said, no, 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 this is not what we think, and Palmer is um, is, uh, is a one-off. And uh, Palmer himself then apologised about a week later. So um, he is a wholly unpredictable figure politically. Um, and what he represents is pretty hard to pretty hard to say. I, I don't know that his views on China represent a big constituency in Australia, whereas I think you could argue that Pauline Hanson did pick up a lot of those old anxieties and frame them in a way that many people responded to. I think Palmer's much more of a, a kind of uh, political um, oddball. 
I was first made aware of of the depth of uh, anti-Asian sentiment in some quarters by a film that I saw. I think I was still maybe in high school or in my undergraduate years in the 1980s. Uh, it was called Romper Stomper. I don't mm. know if you ever saw that. It was yeah. about a, a white uh, a skinhead gang that, that were um, abusing uh, Vietnamese immigrants. Sure. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the Vietnamese immigrant experience as well. And, and uh, were, was it... Uh, were they sort of part and parcel of the same, you know, wave of immigrants uh, from, from China or treated the same? Or, um, I imagine they came over after 74. They did, yeah. I mean, the Vietnamese came through in 74. They were the first really large wave of non-European immigrants uh, after the change to the Immigration Restriction Act, you know, once, once post-Whitlam. So the Vietnamese boat people are the ones who who come in in significant numbers, and actually there was a there was a period there politically where both sides of politics uh, stayed away from any attempt to um, to dress that up or use that politically. So it was a bipartisan political uh, decision that this wouldn't be. Um, turned into a into a political football, you know, which was a good moment in Australian politics and one that's definitely passed now because immigration uh, is constantly used politically uh, uh, in Australia. But the so the Vietnamese came through in very large numbers. They they were greeted as many new immigrant groups were. Uh, with the degree of uh, hostility and suspicion, but that was, in a sense, also true for for Greek and Italian immigrant groups coming through in the fifties and sixties. So, the Australian immigrant experience has tended to be whatever the new group is, they run into trouble, and it's often not the Anglo community that that are the most hostile to the new group coming in. There's a, there's quite a deal of literature around the fact that it's often the immigrant groups themselves, fairly recent immigrant sure, groups themselves. That. In America, yeah. it's the same way as yeah, that's the right. battle for the bottom rung. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. You don't want to be there. Right. So you differentiate yourself from the last group in uh, by separating yourself from them, showing that you're different from them. So those those patterns are pretty complicated ones culturally. But the Vietnamese now, are, you know, they're a well-established uh, community. That there were, in Sydney, there was quite a bit of problem around an area called Cabramatta uh, in the 1990s and early 1900s. A lot of drugs got in there, a lot of crime, uh, dysfunctional communities. But Cabramatta's been pretty well cleaned up and has now become a place that, you know, people rock up to for their Vietnamese soup and... and um, culinary delights okay that's 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 that really helps clear things up a lot for me uh, one of the, the i mean i suppose the the, the, the big question is in uh, the last 20 years with china's really kind of meteoric rise mm. especially with its insatiable appetite for australian nat- natural resources like coal of course and iron mm. ore mm. Uh, you have just just an endless line of of, of freighters off of of Australian ports. Um, how has that changed attitudes toward China among Australians, uh, among ordinary citizens, among lawmakers? I mean, are they more beholden to, resentful of? Uh, how, how has that played out politically yeah. and sociologically in, in Australia? Well, I think politically it's played out as, as in the sense that both major political parties now regard China as absolutely essential to Australia's uh, economic well-being. So, It'd be very difficult to have any Australian political figure of any stature now uh, doing a Clive Palmer or a Pauline Hanson. Sure. You know that just uh, I think even independent of what they might think privately, uh, politically, it'd just be too too dangerous and um, and uh, and damaging to the national interests mm. to to and be tight. slagging off at our major trading partner, right. and that's. It's widely recognised <clears throat> as well that Australia came through the global financial crisis pretty much because of the trading relationship with mm-hmm. with China. So we we are the enormous beneficiaries of China's rise, and that's very widely recognised, I think. 
And it, it's um, interesting that at that very moment you had uh, a, a gentleman who was, of course, first your your uh, foreign minister and then your your, your prime minister, Kevin yeah. Rudd, yeah. who is an excellent Mandarin speaker. I mean, yes. truly excellent. Uh, I've, I've actually had the pleasure of having a conversation with him in Chinese uh, when you were in Davos. And, uh, mm. yeah, I was really astonished at how, how I mean, his command, his facility with the language. Uh, how did that, how, how did he play in Beijing? I think I've heard mixed things. Uh, it's a very interesting question, actually. And the, there's a lot of expectation built up around that. You know, the first Mandarin-speaking Western leader, uh, Kevin Rudd, and uh, the feeling was that this would be tremendously helpful uh, to the relationship. Um, the feeling was that he'd be tremendously helpful to the Labor Party as well. And not, both expectations were disappointed, I think. Um, he was a very, uh, in many ways, a very difficult, uh, idiosyncratic uh, and opinionated uh, figure who didn't have a very strong sense of how to organise either the party mm-hmm. uh, or manage the political process. And um, that played badly in all sorts of ways, both in Australia and in China. I mean, he gave a speech at uh, Peking University uh, in Mandarin, uh, but uh, he invoked that uh, special friend uh, right, category. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, but he appointed him uh, himself... Uh, as special friend, whereas clearly... You be critical. <laughs> yes, whereas clearly you have to be invited into that role rather than appoint yourself. Uh, so he appointed himself a special friend and then started to uh, deliver messages to the Chinese which they uh, didn't want to hear particularly and didn't want to hear from him. So I think there was a feeling that... Um, that he kind of overstepped his his role, and in some ways, his facility with Mandarin uh, proved unhelpful. Finally, but don't don't you think that I mean people talk of that negatively, but I mean I can't see that any damage was done to the relationship. Whereas uh, you know now we have. Uh, you know Tony Abbott and 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 Julie Bishop. Well, I mean, before who, you, say, you uh, just uh, say that no damage was done. Okay, I mean, let me finish. Um, now we have Tony Abbott and you know Julie Bishop, who occasionally say sycophantic things and then occasionally say things that really do enrage the Chinese, such mm-hmm. as uh, Bishop's comments about the Chinese declaration of of the ADIZ. But I mean, w- was there any actual fallout from Ke- what Kevin Rudd? Kevin Rudd's dealing. I mean, this this was the golden period to me of Sino-Australian relations. That you know, both in terms of business and in terms of general positive sentiments in the media. And uh, I I think that it's declined since then. You see a lot more tension, both in Chinese press and Australian press. Jeremy, help me out. I, I, maybe I'm remembering things wrong, but I seem to th- to place like the Stern Who incident kind of in the the middle of your golden age. Yes, it was. Well, uh, yeah, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, that's a separate thing. You know, okay. they're, they're, they're Australian and American Chinese business people in jail, and they have been for some time. You know, that that was an incident, but in terms of that, that wasn't a, a, a fact in relations between the two countries. It didn't cause, did it? I don't know. Uh, well, it was a bit of a yeah. It was certainly a bit of a problem. I mean, I I um I would challenge the chronology of the golden age a bit, uh, Jeremy. I mean, it it. It really started in some ways before uh, Rudd with the Howard uh, prime ministership and Howard was quite a conservative uh, prime minister and no particular enthusiasm for China initially and no knowledge of China much and certainly no knowledge of Mandarin. But the Howard-China relationship or his relationship with the Chinese leadership turned out to be a pretty positive one, actually. So a lot of that was based around the commodity boom, uh, which, uh, in a sense, Rudd was also the beneficiary of, or the Australian government was the beneficiary of that that boom. And there was also quite a controversy in the Rudd uh, period around a defence white paper which posited China as the major threat to Australia, and the Chinese were very, very unhappy about that. So that was a, a kind of equivalent to the ADIZ, uh, ADIZ business that, um, you know, here we were seeing China as, as a threat. Uh, so the, yeah, I mean, what, what long-term damage was was done is another question, but I think the other the other side to it is that a lot of expectations were built up around the fact that here you had for the first time 
a Western leader who could speak to the Chinese side in Mandarin and wouldn't that make things a whole lot better? And in fact, they didn't turn out to be a whole lot better. Well, it's always been my experience. I think there's a certain comfort that Chinese leaders derive from the language barrier and uh, they can continue to be, you know, well, I mean, not to invoke a stereotype, but inscrutable. I mean, no, no, not it, just it the government. It doesn't work to your advantage necessarily to speak good Chinese. I mean, mm. you know, Kaiser, most of the successful foreign entrepreneurs you and I know in China don't speak very good Chinese yeah, or yeah, none at all. That's, that's it's, not a coincidence. it's not necessarily an advantage. That is true. Yes, that's a model I'm following, and it's working exceptionally well for me. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Let's talk about the Australian uh, alliance, the ANZUS alliance with uh, with the US, and yeah. whether that sticks in the Chinese craw. I mean, uh, yeah. especially in light of the so-called pivot or rebalancing, uh, when one of the first announcements when President Obama sort of announced this was the 2,500 troops in northern Australia. Uh, I mean, this is still something that, that my Chinese friends will, will repeat back to me as you know evidence of this insidious containment policy. Uh, and also, just to say that in some ways, this is the core problem, isn't it, facing Australia? You, you, you're dependent on China for selling commodities, but you have this alliance with the United States. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big issue for Australia, and it's the first time that it's really come up in this, in this way that uh, our major trading partner is not our major security partner in a way. I mean, you could say that clearly Japan was our major trading partner for a long time, but Japan was so close to the US in foreign policy terms that there wasn't, in a, in a way, a huge uh, difference there. Um, and it is now presented by um, an Australian uh, um, defence and security uh, analyst, uh, Hugh White, as the China choice, you know, the question of you know, where do we go in the event that there's a conflict between the US and China? Uh, where does Australia go? Does, do, do we go with our, uh, our alliance partner or do we go with our trading partner or do we stand back and say, sort it out and when it's sorted out, we'll, we'll come back into the story? It's, it's, it's a huge dilemma, I think, for Australia. And I, th- I think the, the uh, connection to the US, if anything, has intensified in in political uh, circles, certainly in conservative political circles, given that they're concerned about the rise of China. Um, you know, so that they they cuddle up more closely to the US than might otherwise have been the case. I think. Interesting that uh, um, I, again. I mean, I'm <coughs> struck by the parallels with the United States when when we talk about. Uh, it, it almost seems like Beijing has a preference for conservative governments in Australia, uh, you know, just as they seem to have a preference for Republican uh, administrations in the U.S. Uh, well, certainly the Howard. I mean, the Howard Howard um, was not a person who had showed any serious interest in or enthusiasm for Asia. It has to be said, John Howard, Prime Minister from '96 to 2007. Uh, well, Hawke was on the Labor side and, and showed a lot of interest in China and still does. But Howard, yeah, I mean, you would have thought that, that and in fact, the Labor Party, uh, Paul Keating uh, famously said of Howard that, that he'd had no affinity with Asia. He wouldn't work in Asia. He wouldn't understand Asia and wouldn't be well received in Asia. But, but Howard didn't do too badly, actually, in, especially in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it goes to that point that you're making, in fact, that a conservative leader went across rather better than uh, than his uh, critics in Australia would have uh, imagined. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of, of ground here, um, but there's still a lot of, of, of things that we'd like to talk to you about. Uh, one of them is just the experience of an Australian teaching here at a Chinese university. I don't believe that we've actually... Ever ever tackled that before? Have we, Jeremy? Have we? Of being a foreign just teacher, being, a know, foreign professor? No, I don't think we have. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah, know, sure. You're, you've been here for eighteen months now. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I mean, what's uh, what's different about this position? I think is that it is it is a chair and it's uh, an ongoing position. So uh, I'll be here three years all up, and right. on my departure, there'll be someone else come in. Often the the teaching arrangement or the foreign expert arrangements here are that you know people come in for a semester or two or a year or two and then off they go and there's, so there's no great continuity. So I think the real difference with this position is that the the both sides kind of recognise that this is here to stay institutionally. 
so it becomes a much closer working relationship. You know, we have to work together. We have to work collaboratively. So the and that's a big difference from the fly in, fly out foreign expert pattern where basically you deliver courses that are suitable to the institution or which the institution approves. You don't get connected much to the longer term planning for a program uh, and you don't have much opportunity to, to build something that is ongoing. Whereas the whole purpose of the chair is actually to build a program and set up a whole lot of structures that will continue um, well for as long as we, uh, you know, for as long as they can. And to build that network of Australian studies, that, that, that group of 42 or so that uh, now exist across China. So it's, um, and, and it makes, it does make, I mean, it's, it, it enters perilously into the, into the China cliche uh, territory, but it, I think it makes a huge difference to be here on an ongoing basis rather than as a fly-in, fly-out worker because it just plays differently here. Yeah, I think that's true in any field. Uh, you, yeah. you, it, w- I mean, Kaiser and I over the years have seen fly-in, fly-out people of all fields and job descriptions, and a lot of them may be better described as carpetbaggers. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't encourage uh, organic growth of, of anything. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think I think the the thing that's been established here, and it is you know supported by BHP Billiton, so the the great mining boom has come to uh, the aid of Australian studies in China. But it does give a permanency to this arrangement that mm. uh, that it lacked uh, previously, and it's the first you know it's the first chair of its kind that we've had in Australia. Uh, in sorry, in China, in the China, first right. Australian studies chair in China. We've got them in other places, you know, Harvard, Georgetown. Uh, Tokyo, etc., but not here. So there was a feeling that it was high time that we had one here. At the top of the hour, we mentioned uh, that you had written a, a book called "Not Dark Yet," which is a personal history in which you examine really, you know, your 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 family going back to your great great grandparents yeah. who came to Australia in presumably from the UK uh, in in eighteen fifty or in the eighteen fifties. Yeah, around about then. And it's also a, a meditation on, on memory and on seeing, on vision, um, because, of course, uh, your own experience with your eyesight worsening uh, from macular degeneration, um, I, I would love to hear how these two themes tie together and um, maybe give us a little pitch for the book. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, the book the book has been translated by, by Lee Yao, as you mentioned, and uh, I'm very pleased to say that the first print run sold out. In seven oh, months, people's literature publishing house is, is a great little. Uh, no, well, not a great little. It's a it's a great big uh, enterprise, and they've done exceptionally well. You take your place along. Morrison is one of the. Oh, experience. absolutely! No, push him aside. Uh, no, move aside, Morrison. Um, but no, that's that's. Uh, it's been a really rewarding experience to have the book uh, translated and to uh, talk to Lee Yao about that that process. But the book, um, yeah, the book really arose because of the sight uh, problem which occurred pretty much 10 years ago. And um, so I am legally blind. And that, uh, for a historian, is no great asset because you tend to use a lot of archival material. There's a lot of reading involved, um, a lot of close, you know, visual uh, work required. So I wanted to write... I wanted to keep writing, but I had to write something in a slightly different way. So the... Uh, it drew much more on memory and recollection of family and the language that these people spoke. It's a middle-class Australian family. So it's not a stereotypical, you know, a lot of stereotypical Australian stuff, you know, corked hats and, you know, um, crocodile Dundee type images of Australia. But middle-class Australia is a bit more elusive, I think. And uh, so the book is an attempt to capture that, that world and those people. Uh, their language, uh, their habits and beliefs and practices. Um, and it also addresses the question of family, you know, just what is a, what is an Australian family? How does it work and how does it function? And um, I think it was that that Lee Yao thought that would be of most interest to Chinese readers, you know, just, mm-hmm. just how does this stuff work in Australia? You know, how do, how do we understand families and how do families interact and relate and or not 
did you have living relatives from an earlier generation who you were able to, to interview or to, to yeah I did I mean I for my parents um, they were both dead and in fact I think they had to be for me to write the book because it would have been a much harder book to write with them alive and I had three uncles who served in the war so they'd all died as well uh, but there were relatives uh, around who, uh, in their 80s, who had some pretty good memories and a bit more distant in a way. So I was able to to talk to them and uh, get some pretty good stories out of them. But there is also, you know, there there are more records around than I'd imagined. I hadn't. I'm a historian by training and background, so I'd, I'd originally thought that this was this family, these people had left no records much, no diaries, no letters. But they're kind of mainstream people for that. I mean, historians often go to where the records are, but the records are often around people who are not in any sense mainstream. Mm. Mainstream people don't leave records of their lives. They don't leave a trace. So the the question became, how do you write about people who are so historically unobtrusive, you know, who hide their traces? and don't see themselves as part of a big story of history at all. It is a challenge. Well, unfortunately, that I don't really have was I undertake a similar project because my grandfather was an historian and ah. was very copious about, about uh, his own biographical notes and everything. Well, he wrote too much, obviously, Kaiser. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the benefit of not having a lot of uh, records to draw upon, and that was a, I, I, that I, was a big I, help, I think. <laughs> I have too much. To yeah, yeah. No, that can be a problem. I think that can be a real be problem. A real problem yeah. It can be a problem, yeah. Um, I see that Jeremy has copies both of Australia's Asia and of Not Dark Yet, so I'm very much looking forward to reading both of these books. And Jeremy, I hope you'll let me take them home with me today. Absolutely. So as is our habit, we will uh, close the show out with recommendations. Uh, and again, as is our habit, we'll start with Jeremy. What do you have for us this week, Jeremy? I, I have two that are related to the show. Um, Good. It's uh, a, my favorite radio show, really, is, is Philip Adams, uh, the living treasure of Australian Lovely. broadcast. And I've recommended his show a number of times, but I usually pick an episode, so I think I'm allowed to do it again. And I'd like to rep- uh, uh, recommend two episodes. One is, in fact, an interview with our guest, David Walker, about his book, uh, which I guess was... Bad though, Jeremy. We're just not as good. Well, it's yeah, it's a different it's a different <laughs> it's a topic. Just, just different. Because Philip's uh, um, interview just focuses on not dark yet. Um, so if you're curious about that, you can hear more. And another um, Philip Adams uh, um, radio show, which all available as podcasts uh, recently, is one on Gough Whitlam, the much loved and sometimes controversial Prime Minister of Australia that uh, David you'd, you'd mentioned earlier. And mm. as somebody who's not Australian, um, you know, I. I think for most Americans and much of our our, uh, our um, audience, you don't really know what Gough Whitlam means, but he was a very special character in Australia. I mean, I think he really changed the politics and the history, and he was fundamental fundamental to, to Australia's warming up to China. So a very interesting uh, show about Gough Whitlam. So, Jeremy, you were telling me the other day that you, you, you stumbled on a recording of, 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 of Philip Adams from... 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah. He doesn't have that sort of lovely gravitas in his voice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I only discovered him, you know, a few years ago, and I I, I didn't know, you know, so I I know his voice is this lovely gravelly voice, but when he was younger, he he didn't sound quite so gravelly. Maybe 20 years from now, I'll, I'll... Possess some some of that. We'll all we'll all be able to do gravelly, I think. I'm, I'm I'm much more I'm much closer to it than you guys. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But we've been in Beijing so much longer. You should be gravelly. <laughs> yeah, you should be gravelly. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, D- David Walker, what do you have for us? Well, I mean, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd support the Philip uh, gravelly uh, gravelly Philip, and I would also uh, note uh, the commentary around uh, Gough Whitlam's passing on the twenty first of October. Uh, this year uh, a huge figure both for uh, detractors and for those who who supported him and particularly important for China but um, I'd um, I think I'd throw in the uh, the work that the China in the World Center is doing uh, Jeremy Barme and uh, colleagues and they've just produced a new uh, collection of uh, essays around the Australia China relationship which is characteristically quirky and wide-ranging and interesting and short um, beautifully produced, lovely book, and there's also um, a, a kind of reflection by our first uh, ambassador, Stephen uh, Fitzgerald, uh, who was appointed by Gough Whitlam, 1972, still with us uh, in his 70s, 
and uh, he's written a reflection upon the Australia-China relationship uh, across the 40 years or so of uh, since recognition in 1972. So I'd throw those in. I don't have a turkey seller for you, I'm sorry. <laughs> no Beijing turkey seller. Well, I mean, I'm about to celebrate Thanksgiving, so I'm... I'm, I'm you're looking for turkeys. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll let you know. If, uh, if I find one, I'll, you'll be the first to Just, know. You know uh, basically, the trick is to... to Brine the turkey, sugar, like a cup. Oh, the recipe. Yeah, yeah oh, get the recipe going. Okay. Right. And, yeah. then, and I like to, to slather it in slabs of bacon toothpicked in gently across the, of course. the breast. And uh, that works very well. Good. I, I'm, I'm, I have a, Jeremy, you're coming over for Thanksgiving, I hope. I, I you're, think you're, so. Your wife may be giving birth on that day. Yes, I, I maybe not. Yeah, you know, I, I might be in the hospital. <laughs> uh, my recommendation is going to be completely unrelated. Uh, although it's not unrelated to this show, I've spent the entire time <laughs> with one hand cupped to an ear trying to hear uh, Jeremy and, and 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 David because my I'm almost entirely deaf, uh, which I think is is uh, something I'll recover from quickly. But now that's all due to. Um, to the band Bad Mama San, which I'm recommending today. Uh, it's <laughs> an expatriate band here uh, made up of Jamie Welton, who is just, uh, uh, for my money, the best working musician in China. I'm just a mm. fabulous guitar player, a terrific showman, great pipes. Uh, they did two sets last night at two different places, and I, I, I went from set to set. Uh, this It was Halloween Eve, so, of course, uh, on Halloween they were a good spooky band. A set of their own originals, which are, you know, uh, sort of, uh, on the thrash spectrum of things, uh, metal. Uh, he's got a, a f- fabulous French drummer from La Rochelle in the, uh, the, in the area around Provence, and um, or Bordeaux rather, and uh, and then uh, a Swedish uh, bass player named Toby who actually owns the Purple Haze string of Thai restaurants Ooh. here, and he's a st- just phenomenally good bassist. Anyway, the three of them, it's a little trio. Uh, then they did a set of, 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 of covers, which were like, you know, all the greats. It was like, know, there was a couple of Slayer songs and Metallica, but you know, the stuff I really liked, they do a, a fabulous cover of, of, of Highway Star by, by Deep Purple. Uh, just, I, I, there's no greater joy for a metalhead than to watch these guys uh, they, they play very frequently in Beijing I, I oh. highly recommend that you, okay. you go see them it's worth the, the pain that I will inevitably begin experiencing in my neck from all the headbanging in, in a couple of hours but uh, anyway uh, if, if, if I had a lot of sort of disjointed comments today it was because I was unable to hear our guests uh, because my ears are completely <laughs> shot but uh, I'll recover from that soon so, and in time hopefully to see you next week and uh, your listeners if you go and do the same thing as Kaiser please put in some uh, um, you know ear, ear, ear plugs I, I know I should I should, <laughs> okay well I did hear that and I will take that advice <laughs> good alright uh, so folks we'll see you next week on the Cynical Podcast take care